Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 29, The Nest Review. So today we're going to talk about nests. What are they? How are they made? What's their deal? And already, I know what you're thinking, dedicated listener to the podcast that you are. Nate, you've already done an episode on nests. It was episode four, to which I say, yes, I know. I was there when it happened. But here's the thing about nests. There are a lot of nests out there. And here's the other thing about nests. They need to be reviewed on a five-star scale, because I don't know about you, when I'm in the market for a quality nest, I need to know how it performs against the leading brands. I need to know about its durability, investment and upkeep, its safety rating, its design qualities and aesthetic appeal. These are nuances that can only be captured with the greatest tool for delivering critique ever created, the five-star rating. So, I invite you to sit back as I review some of the best nests in the bird kingdom. Now, before we get stuck into some nests, we should cover off what exactly we mean by a nest. I know we all know a nest when we see one, but sometimes it's good to have our definitions sorted. So, nests serve one purpose, and one purpose only. They are a place for the bird to incubate their eggs, and potentially raise their young before they fledge. Uh, fly away. And I say potentially because some hatchlings leave the nest straight away. When precocial chicks hatch, they are pretty much ready to take on the world. Game birds and waterfowl tend to have babies that are good to go as soon as they hatch. The majority of birds, though, are altricial. They're born naked, blind and helpless, and need to spend a bit of time in the nest while they get bigger and fatter and feathered. And sighted. So a nest is a vessel to contain eggs, and ideally provide some form of protection from both the elements and potential predators. I don't know if you've noticed, but eggs are super tasty. Plenty of animals out there are craving an egg's benny. So if a nest can conceal and hide the eggs, all the better. Sometimes a nest can function as a way to woo a mate. Females will choose mates based on their ability to build a good-looking nest. But then sometimes, the nest is made exclusively by the female, without a male in sight. And other times, a pair of birds will work together. And other, other times, a whole community of birds will cooperate to make a single nest. But we will get to all that. Right now, we don't want any of that to distract from our purpose. So here's another question. What isn't a nest? A nest is not the bird's home. There are exceptions. If the bird isn't tending to eggs, it usually doesn't fuss with a nest. They do not sleep there. They do not shelter there. There are exceptions. Nests are vessels for eggs. And so with that function in mind, let's meet some nests and the birds who make them. I think we need a little little, little intro music here for, to put between the, the nests. Sort of like a bing, bing, bing. Can we... Can we, can, we, can we muck that, something like that up? All right, let's, let's do that in the post. Bing, bing, bing. Now let's be honest. We all know what a nest is. The classic nest, the nest that is wedged high in a tree, made out of twigs, lined with something soft, circular in shape, open at the top, 
mother bird sitting on her eggs. That's right. It's the cup nest. Now, cup nests come in all shapes and sizes. The tiniest on record is about the size of a thimble, while you could fit a giraffe in the biggest on record. So, there's a lot of variation. There is a cup nest out there to fit any need and any budget. But let's go with the bird who makes the quintessential cup nest. The American Robin. If you want a nest that looks like a nest, the American Robin is the bird for you. They make a perfect cup-shaped nest out of twigs entwined with each other. They're quite adaptable and can be placed in trees, gutters, or under eaves. They don't mind getting close to human habitation. The female chooses the nesting site and does most of the building. The male helps by fetching construction material, but as to the placement and design, this is all the female's work. She makes the nest from the inside out, and once the basic shape is fleshed out, she will reinforce it with mud and then line the inside with dry grass to make a nice bed for the eggs. Now the mud is vital to the nest's foundation. Generally, the robin will go to muddy sources like puddles, but in dry years they get resourceful and will take dirt to places like bird baths to make their own mud. Typical nests are 15 to 30 centimetres across, that's their diameter, and will generally hold 3 to 5 eggs. While undoubtedly unadventurous, the robin's nest is reliable. It encapsulates the essence of what we imagine a nest should be, No doubt there is so much more a nest could offer. Aside from any nearby leaves, there is no camouflage or concealment to be had. But for traditional appeal, it is hard to go past the robin's nest. The younger generation may be temporarily wooed by the weavers and their intricate knots, but the robin's nest will always remain a timeless classic. I give the robin's nest three and a half stars. Bing dong dong. The cup nest is a great favourite of the song birds, but there are many other species that also rely on the traditional design. One such group are the hummingbirds, and they produce a cup nest that will appeal to the aesthetes among you. The hummingbirds are some of the smallest birds in the world, and so naturally they build the smallest nests. When you're laying an egg that is only the size of a tic-tac, you don't need a lot of space. But the nests they make are adorable, not only because of their diminutive size, but because of their delicate and detailed design. The female hummingbird alone constructs the nest, incubates the eggs, and raises the young. Hummingbirds are famed for their dazzling feathers and jewel-like appearance, but primarily it is the males who sport the fancy plumes. Their bright feathers have a number of purposes, but one of the main ones is attracting a mate. Females like beautiful males, but they also like beautiful males who can perform intricate and labour-intensive courtship displays. When it comes to birds, a good rule of thumb is that the more beautiful the male, and the more elaborate his courtship display, the less likely he is to do anything to raise the babies. Hummingbirds are a textbook example. So once the lady has taken the guy's, uh, sample, she goes off alone to make her tiny cup-shaped nest. She begins with a base layer of soft, fluffy fibres. She sits in the middle of her construction site and uses her own body to compress the material and mould the shape of the cup to her body, creating a bespoke, snug fit. Once the basic shape is laid down, she needs to bind the fibres together 
and reinforce the structure. To do this, she uses one of the strongest materials she can find, spiderweb. She raids arachnid nests to steal their gosmas for her own, but it is the final touch that really makes the nest gorgeous. She covers its outside with a collection of moss, lichen, and leaves, creating a beautiful bowl that also blends in perfectly with its surrounds. Now, I'm not going to lie, this is a specialist nest. While certainly compact and a real space saver, if you've got an egg any bigger than your pinky nail, this nest will not provide the coverage you need. Having said that, they are delightfully ornate. If you're the kind of person that puts a Fabergé egg on a mantelpiece, then you will definitely find a place to proudly display this nest. I give the hummingbird nest four stars. Bing dong dong. Now the cup nest is all fine and dandy, but it does have drawbacks. Primarily, a cup is open and exposed. Now, obviously, this has convenience for the parent birds. They can just fly straight in and pop on top of it. Parking is a joy. But it does leave the eggs exposed to both the whims of the weather and the prying eyes of predators. After all, a convertible is all well and good in fine weather, but when the rains come, you want to put the top on. So let's add an accessory as we turn our attention to dome nests. A dome nest is like a cup nest, but with a roof. Like the traditional cup nest, the dome nest comes in many forms to suit many needs. Let's begin with the thornbill. The thornbill are a group of tiny Australian songbirds belonging to the genus Acathensia. Definitely said that right, don't look it up. There are 14 species and they are all teeny tiny. As the name suggests, they have a long, pointy, thorn-like bill. They're highly social and live in family groups and spend their days flitting about trees, gleaming insects off bark and the underside of leaves. Now, for tiny birds, nesting is always a dangerous time because many larger birds are only too eager to nick their eggs. Most will do their best to wedge their nest deep in the thickest part of a shrub, where it will hopefully be unobtainable to larger animals that can't fit. But the thornbill takes an extra step and makes a completely enclosed nest. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, the thornbill nest is ugly. It is an ill-formed mass of messy leaf litter. It almost looks like a cocoon a caterpillar would spin for itself. But its scruffy nature has the advantage of providing additional camouflage. And what's more, the thornbill has a second trick up its wing. They build a depression in the top of the dome that acts as a false cup, while the true entrance to the nest is hidden in the base. For a casual carawong just flapping by, it looks like an empty nest. So it's an excellent bluff. Now granted, the thornbill has sacrificed form for function, but in a cutthroat world where failure means your babies get eaten, taking these additional safety steps is sometimes necessary. No one will ever frame the thornbill's nest and hang it in the pool room, but for passive protection, you can't go past it. I give the thornbill nest four stars. Bing, bing, bing. Of course, a dome nest need not be made out of leaves, and it need not be inconspicuous. If you want your dome nest to make a bold statement, then the oven bird is for you. The oven bird is a South American resident, of which there are several species. Now, while the family group are known as oven birds, individually they are properly known by their Spanish name, Jonero, which means 
Baker. Either way, the name is a reference to the dome nest they make. It is a mud structure, which the male and female build together. They end up looking like little igloos nestled on tree branches. Supposedly, they resemble ovens. Or igloos made out of poop. Now, quite a lot of effort goes into building these nests. They are a high-investment, high-reward structure. Working together as a team, the Honero will gather up beakfuls of mud. But this isn't a bit of mud like our friend the Robin used to give her nest structural support. The mud is the nest. They continue to add mud to the structure until they've created a complete dome with just one little entrance at the front. It can take anywhere from five days to a month to build these things, depending on how motivated the bird is. In the end, we're left with a little nest that looks a bit like a pizza oven, or an igloo made of poo. A lot of energy goes into building this nest, but there are advantages, because in a strange twist of fate, this oven-looking nest does, to a certain degree, act like an oven. It captures and retains the heat of the day, which then helps to incubate the egg. The parents get to spend less time sitting on the nest because the eggs are kept warm without them. It's a self-incubating nest, which is pretty fancy. So there is a big time investment up front, but then it gets paid back to you later. So depending on how you want to ladle out your time, this could be the nest for you. Maybe you like home reno, but you're always looking for the next job. You never want to sit still. Here, you don't get tied to the house after you finish. You get to go out and take on the next project. Granted, this is not an attractive nest, eagerly made of poo, but it is a statement piece for those bold enough to pull it off and with the willingness to get their hands dirty. The ovenbird nest can be rewarding. I give it three stars. Igloo made a poop. Bing, bing, bing. For our next nest, let's move Riverside in New Zealand. There we will find one of the most curious birds in the world, the Rye-bill. This bird is instantly recognisable because its nose is all bent out of shape. Every Rye-bill has a beak that bends to the right, quite prominently too. Going to be honest, it looks like they flew at high speed into a wall. Their bent bills help them get in under rocks to hunt for little aquatic insects and larvae. But we're not here to talk about their four-star feeding habits, we're here to talk about their nest, or rather, the lack thereof. The rye-bill makes what is called a scrape nest. And they're called a scrape nest because that's all the bird does to make it. They scrape out a tiny patch of earth and lay their egg straight onto the ground. Many species of shorebirds do this. Plovers, of which the rye-bill is related, terns and penguins are the main offenders. Sometimes they will line the inside of the scrape with some little pebbles, but that's about it. It's hardly a nest at all. Rather than relying on fancy building strategies to hide their nest from prying eyes, they rely on the patterning of their eggs to keep them hidden. Ryebills nest among grey pebbles on the river's shoreline, and their eggs perfectly match the size and colour of these rocks. If you don't know what you're looking for, the eggs are almost invisible on the ground. Other users of the scrape nest have a similar strategy. One particularly interesting bird is Timonix corsa. This bird favours nesting in areas where fire has recently gone through. This is because their eggs are black and look like scorched and charred rocks. It's a fancy trick to be sure, but this has more to do with egg adaptation than nest construction. 
If we're being serious, the scraped nest is hardly a nest at all. It is the half-assed effort of nesting practices. The near enough is good enough, and can I please go home now excuse of a nest. It is a mockery to even attach the word nest to the scrape. I give the scrape nest one and a half stars. Bing dong dong. From the lowest effort nest, we move to one of the highest effort nests. The nest of the sociable weaver. If you want a nest that breaks all the rules, then the sociable weaver is the one for you. These are a small African bird. They vaguely resemble a sparrow or a finch, but as the name suggests, they belong to the weaver family. We will meet more of their weaverkin soon. Now from the name, you might assume the sociable weaver weaves, but they do not. They are, however, highly sociable, and to see just how sociable they are, we should start with their nest. There is no other way to describe a sociable weaver nest than as a bale of hay that got stuck in a tree. These are some of the biggest structures birds make. The largest can house up to 100 pairs of birds. That's 200 birds in one nest. These birds aren't just sociable, they're building whole communities. Only by working together can they make such large nests. Each bird contributes to building and maintaining the nest. And their build strategy is simple. They gather up bits of dried grass and shove it in the pile. Like I said, they don't so much weave as build a pile in a tree. Now, unlike many other nests that are good only for a single season, the weaver's nest is built to last. Some are known to have been continually occupied for over a hundred years. Inside the nest are dozens of chambers. Some are used by pairs to lay eggs and raise their young, while others contain young birds bunking with each other. Sometimes other animals find their way into the nest and use a chamber for themselves, such as finches and parrots. Sometimes other birds will even build their nest on top of the weaver's nest. You will recall from the start of the episode, I said birds never sleep in their nests. Well, we have found the exception. The weavers roost in their nest every night, regardless of if they have eggs on the boil or not. You see, the nest serves a few important functions. These weavers live in a harsh, desert-like environment. The days are hot and the nights are cold. But the nest helps to regulate these temperatures. It shields them from the worst heat of the day and keeps them cosy during the bitter nights. The only downside to these mighty nests is sometimes our birds get a bit enthusiastic and make a nest of such substantial bulk that the tree can no longer support it and the whole thing comes crashing down. The birds are never to be deterred for long, though, and they just pick up the pieces and start over. When it comes to fostering a sense of community, there is no better nest. These birds come together to raise their home, and then they maintain their dwelling for generation after generation, an island of refuge in an otherwise harsh environment. And there is also no more striking sight in avian construction than a gravity-defying bundle of hay suspended high in a tree. They're a miracle of natural design and dead simple to make. I give the sociable weaver nest five stars. Bing dong dong. After having met a bird that pertains to be a weaver, maybe it's time that we meet one that truly weaves. The Cape Pendulum Tit is one such bird. Although, ironically, they don't belong to the weaver family. But that's neither here nor there. If the tit weaves, I'm pleased. These are tiny birds from southern Africa. They belong, funnily enough, to the pendulum tip family, and all members make similar nests. 
The material of choice for these tits are soft plant fibres. In fact, if it's available, they'll even use sheep wool. They make one soft comfy nest. They weave these fibres together into a nest that hangs from the upper branches of a tree. And I'm going to be honest, the nest looks like a sack. And not an attractive sack either, like a disused plastic shopping bag that's picked up a lot of dirt. Or like an old man's hanging ball. It takes the tiny birds, which are some of the smallest in Africa, nearly a month to build this pendulous structure. The truly remarkable thing about these nests, though, is the predator deterrent system they have. To the casual observer, it would seem that the nest entrance is quite obvious. It is a prominent opening right smack in the middle of the damn thing. But if you were to peek inside, you would see nothing but an empty chamber. The tit makes a false bottom. There is definitely a sex joke in there somewhere. Uh, hey, can we get the guys to work on a potential uh, tit butt joke? What do you mean there are no guys? What do you mean there's only me? What do you mean I'm talking to myself? The real entrance to the nest is situated directly above this false opening, but the entrance operates like a trap door. It only opens while the bird is entering or exiting the nest, and then it flops back shut, concealing the real egg chamber from any prying eyes. Now, for comfort and design, it is hard to go past this nest. The woolly inlay makes it cosy during all weather, and with secret chambers and a trap door, it's an instant conversation starter, as well as a clever predator repellent. In the opinion of this professional reviewer of nests, the only thing that lets it down is its kind of gross appearance. I know in Africa some people use the nest as a decorative ornament, but that's their business, and there's no accounting for taste. I give the pendulum tit nest four and a half stars. Bing, bing, bing. Now, the pendulum tit makes nests which have great defences against predators, but these nests are still obvious. If you're walking around and you look up and see a mini, dirty sheep bag hanging off a branch, it isn't exactly inconspicuous. But our next nest takes hiding in plain sight to a whole new level. The tailor bird is not only a skilled builder, but they're a first-class camouflageur. Now again, the tailor bird, even though it weaves, technically it's not a weaver. Hey, do we even feature a weaver in this episode? What do you mean it's still just me? Well, you know what I always say, if it weaves, I'm pleased. Tailor birds are a type of warbler, not all too distantly related from our friend the pendulum tits. There are 13 species of tailor bird, and they all make a rather similar nest. To be fair, they don't so much as weave as they stitch. And you know what I always say, if it stitches their bitch to make its nest, the tailor bird finds a large green leaf. It then pierces little holes along its edge, and then using spider silk, it threads this leaf to another leaf, creating a kind of cradle structure. Inside the cradle, the bird then makes the real nest. But the beauty of the nest is how well hidden it is. The cradle encases and conceals the nest. And because the bird is so delicate with its stitch work, it never kills the leaf. The leaf stays alive and green while the bird uses its nest. This makes for perfect camouflage. In a forest full of leaves, the nest looks like any other of the literally millions of leaves. It's a rather ingenious design. For a clever solution to a problem every bird faces, this nest is a real standout. Its sympathetic design is in perfect harmony with its surrounds. The delicate craft birdmanship the tailor exhibits during their manufacturing process is also second to none. 
This is a bespoke, living nest, perfectly at one with nature and ideal for the environmentally conscious. I give the tailor bird nest five stars. Bing, bing, bing. For our next bird, let's mix it up a little. If we travel to South America, we will find a rather ungainly looking bird called the Putu. Or is it pronounced Potu? Look, there's no consensus on how that name is said. The Potu is a large nocturnal bird belonging to the broad nightjar family. For Australians, they're like the tawny frogmouth of South America. They got big googly eyes, wide beaks for catching insects on the wing, and they mostly come out at night. Mostly. But what about their nesting situation? What does the potu do when it's time to lay an egg? I'll tell you what the potu do. Nothing. They find a stump or a branch and they just slap their egg straight onto it and call it a day. Now, there is something to be said for the minimalist aesthetic. And compared to every nest we've seen so far, it rates best on the amount of effort it takes to construct and maintain. Nothing. To defend its nest, the poto relies primarily on its own cryptic camouflage and masterful ability to impersonate a branch. But should that fail, it opens its beak and bulges its eyes in a startling display. If you're a busy single mother struggling to find time in your day to gather sticks and arrange them into an attractive cup, then maybe the poto way is the way for you. But call me old-fashioned. I prefer a nest that takes more than a stiff breeze to dislodge my egg. I give the poto nest, I mean, can we even call it a nest, the one star it so rightly deserves. Bing, bing, bing. Our next nest belongs to the barn swallow. These are agile, graceful birds that spend a large proportion of their life darting about on the wing. They earned their name in part because of their nesting practices. They like to seek additional shelter for their nests. In the wilderness, they would nest in cliffs or caves, but today this is a rare nesting practice. The barn swallow has become closely associated with humans and the structures we build. In part, this has allowed them to follow people and spread all over the world, and today they have one of the largest global ranges of any bird. They particularly like to nest under eaves, the space between the wall and the roof. Our human structures provide the nest an additional layer of shelter and protection from the elements. Much like our friend the ovenbird, the swallow also makes its nest primarily from mud. Except, unlike the ovenbird, the swallow sticks its nest to the side of a building, making, in effect, a half-cup structure. Both males and females build the nest together, and it appears that a male's ability to make a good nest is a sexually selected trait, as more eggs tend to be laid in better nests. Once the mud structure is completed, the nest then gets lined with some sort of soft material. Straw, feathers, hair, whatever happens to be at hand. Now, there is a lot to be said for the swallow nest. While it is undoubtedly a rather messy construct, it has everything else going for it. It gains additional protection from being literally inside a human structure, and being affixed to a smooth vertical surface makes it difficult for predators to get at. They have few predators, and brood parasites rarely target their nests. Sure, flying around with a beak full of mud is less than ideal, but if you can push through the initial discomfort, you've got one of the most secure and comfortable nests getting around. I give the barn swallow nest four stars. Bing, bing, bing. 
Our next bird has a similar strategy to the barn swallow. This is the edible nest swiftlet. Now, we've already got a pretty strong indication in the name of this bird as to what their nest is all about, but let's clear up a couple of other points first. Swifts and swallows look remarkably similar. They both have slim down bodies, delta-shaped wings, that's the swept-back angular style. Think what a falcon looks like. And they live their life darting about, hunting flying insects. But the swallow and the swift are not related to each other. In fact, swifts are more closely related to hummingbirds. That they have a similar body shape is a classic example of convergent evolution. This is a tendency for animals that have similar lifestyles to evolve similar traits. Turns out it's just an efficient way to live, so evolution independently crafted the same form twice. Now, just like their barn brethren, the swifts also have similar nesting practices, except they prefer to keep it to caves. The shape of their nest is also remarkably similar. It is the same half-cup structure that gets adhered to a vertical surface. But where the two birds differ is in their choice of nesting material. Whereas the swallow prefers mud, the edible nest swiftlet prefers its own dried and hardened saliva. Now, this isn't the spit your mother used to put on your elbow when you had a boo-boo. This stuff has some heft to it. The males and females work together to hock up enough spit to build their nest over a two-month period. The spittle hardens into a white translucent shell, which two eggs are laid into. Now, this has to be one of the most innovative nest designs out. It takes all the advantages of the barn swallow, but adds a twist. You never have to worry about finding building material because you produce it yourself. There are distinct advantages. But as the name suggests, there are also disadvantages. Because as it turns out, people decided their nests were damn tasty. The swiftlet nest is the primary ingredient in the Chinese delicacy bird's nest soup. The nests were traditionally harvested from the cave walls and partially dissolved in water until they became gelatinous. Now, when I say this dish is a delicacy, I mean it is a delicacy. And it has a price tag to match. A kilo of nests can go for up to $4,000. Hence why they're sometimes called white gold. Now, with such a financial incentive to gather these nests, over the 20th century, the population of swiftlets collapsed by up to 88% in some regions in just 40 years. The high demand has led to nest harvesting being done in more sustainable ways these days, with people setting up special nesting sites and allowing the birds to bring up their young before harvesting the nests. So, things are improving. And on the balance, turns out that they have a rather magnificent nest, a unique solution to the problem of how to construct a nest, but with one fatal drawback, people decided we wanted to eat it. As such, penalties need to be applied. After all, you don't want to go through all the trouble of building a nest only to have someone sneak up and eat it on you. I give the edible nest swiftlet nest three stars. Oh, and what does bird's nest soup taste like? Apparently it doesn't have much of a flavour. But as with all Chinese delicacies, it's believed to have magical health properties. It doesn't. Bing, bing, bing. Of course, a bird can choose to take a totally different tact. When we think of nests, we usually think of the cup nest, the robin nest, three and a half stars. 
but there are a great many birds that go in the opposite direction and make a burrow. Less like a bird, more like a badger. There are moles in the avian world. Many seabirds do this. Puffins and petrels and the likes. The fairy penguins do this. Bee eaters do this. Some swallows too. And even one species of owl. But the burrowing bird we want to look at today is the belted kingfisher. This is a successful bird of the rivers and waterways of North America. Easily identifiable by their slate blue wings and crested heads, the females wear a belt of brown about their midriff, while the males boast only a pure white chest. That the females are more ornamented than the males is a bit of an oddity in the bird world. The kingfisher is true to its name and primarily hunts small fish. They like to perch in branches above shallow water and wait for a fish to swim into their strike zone. But if a tree isn't available, they're also one of the rare birds that can hover in place and so they can set up their own hunting haunt wherever they like. All this is quite interesting, but we're not here to review their four and a half star hunting strategy, we're here to review their nests. The belted kingfisher favours river banks. Over a period of about a week, the male and female work together to excavate a burrow in the riverside. They make a tunnel that is up to one to two metres long, angled up and away from the water. This has the advantage of preventing rain from running into the nest. And if the worst should happen and the river floods, it also means there will be an air pocket in the nest to keep the chicks from drowning. Now, there is only so much you can say about a hole in the ground. It is, after all, just a hole in the ground. But the belted kingfisher does something that makes it a bit badass. You see, kingfishers have a seafood diet. Oh wait, is it still a seafood if it comes from a river? Kingfishers have a river food diet, but they aren't able to digest fish bones. Instead of passing the pointy bones through their system, they regurgitate them as a little pellet, similar to what owls do. During nesting season, they regurgitate these pellets inside their nest and then use them as a lining. There is some thought that this provides extra insulation for the nest, but I want to be clear. The kingfisher lines the wall of its home with the skeletal remains of its victims. Some people may call that psychotic. I say never let a resource go to waste. And there's no better way to remind your house guests of who's boss than through a gory display of partially digested remains. It is a bold choice, true, but for the homeowner, confident enough to pull it off, it is an interior design that will long be remembered by all who visit. I give the belted kingfisher nest three and a half stars. Bing, bing, bing. Now, it must be said that holes are a delightful place to put any egg, but holes can appear in all sorts of places, not just the ground. Holes can appear in trees. Many parrots take advantage of naturally occurring tree cavities for their nests. But there is a risk in this. It means you are reliant on the right hole appearing at the right time. At times, competition for a tree cavity can be fierce, and if you're a picky bird, it can be even worse. The swift parrot, for example, is extremely picky. It prefers cavities with small entrances, deep chambers, and wide floors. Tree cavities with these exacting traits are rare and comprise only 5% of the available nesting sites. Thanks to deforestation, these specifications are getting harder and harder to fulfill, and as a result, the swift parrot is critically endangered. 
Wouldn't it be better if you could take matters into your own hands, uh, wings, and create the perfect nest cavity of your own accord? Well, that is exactly what the woodpecker does. Many species of woodpecker make their own nests by, you guessed it, pecking wood. They use their sharp, chisel-like beaks to bore their way into the side of a tree and carve out the perfect home for their eggs. Now, this obviously has pros and cons, as all nests do. You may get the perfect home every time, but the method of creation. You are repeatedly slamming your face into a wall. Literally. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like much fun to me. And sure, these birds are especially designed to do this work. It is their whole shtick after all. So if you're willing to do the work, the woodpecker method could be the way to go. But this is a serious DIY job. I give the woodpecker nest three stars. Because, as it turns out, there is an easier way. Bing, bing, bing. You see, the woodpecker is what we call a primary cavity nester. They are primary because they build the nest themselves. You know what's easier though, waiting for someone to do the hard work for you and then move into the pre-made hole. These are what we call secondary cavity nesters. The brilliantly plumed quetzals of South America are one such bird that does this. Another bird is the diminutive elf owl. Now the elf owl, as the name suggests, is a rather tiny owl. They only grow to be about 12 centimetres in length. Not much bigger than a mouse the real owl would eat. But when it comes to nesting, the elf owl ain't no fool. They may be as lazy as the poto, but they still manage to live in luxury. They go on the lookout for abandoned woodpecker nests. As soon as they find one, they move in and call it a job done. This can make the elf owl reliant on another bird to make its nest for it, so there is a small risk it takes on. Should its woodpeckers disappear, what options would it have for a nesting site? These are future problems the owl will hopefully never have to face. To live in the same comfort as a woodpecker, but without all the extra effort, you've got to hand it to the elf owl. I give their nests four stars, even though technically they're identical to woodpecker nests. Bing, bing, bing. Now we come to aquatic birds, and I'm sure there are many aquatic birds that would like to give up life on the land entirely. For them, land is where all the predators are. It carries the greatest risks. There's a reason birds fly after all. It's hard for something on the ground to eat you when you're 20 feet in the sky. It's also hard for a cat to eat you when you're 200 kilometers out to sea. But most water birds remain bound to land because they need somewhere to put their eggs. We will meet the albatross in a minute. But there is one bird that's found a way to get around the whole solid earth thing by building a floating nest. And that bird is the grebe. The grebe is a bird of the fresh water. And while they might look similar to other such birds like loons and coots, they are in fact only distantly related. Their closest living relative is the flamingo, which looks like it should be more related to storks and cranes. But hey, what are you going to do? Now, one of the odder features about the grebe is where they decided to put their feet. They are set way back on its body, right up where the butt is. And, you know, I guess that's also where our legs are, so maybe not that weird? The reason the grebe did this is because it makes them more powerful swimmers. But there is a downside. Their feet are set so far back that they almost can't 
walk, which isn't too much of a problem generally. They just hang out on their lakes and fly from one water source to the next. So what happens when it comes time to make a nest? Surely they have to return to land, or at least a tree to do that. Well, no. No, they do not. They're a bird that has figured out a way to lay their eggs on water by building floating nests. They build a floating mound of vegetation normally anchored to a submerged branch or reed. They source material for their nest by diving for decaying plant matter, picking it up from the bottom of the lake and then piling it up until it forms a floating mass. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can they take something that sunk to the bottom of a lake and make it float? It's a great question, and the answer is they can't. Gradually, their decaying pile of weeds will sink. Their solution, though, is pure bloody-minded persistence. They just keep adding more plant material to it. Sometimes when the first egg is laid, they may not have the whole high-and-dry thing worked out, and the egg can be laid in a puddle of water. But they just keep adding more material on the side of the rim. They'll grab the plant matter and tuck it under the eggs over and over again until they raise the egg out of the water. It can take a couple of days, but eventually they will win and the structure will stay afloat. Now, one added bonus of using decaying plant material is that it gives off heat that helps incubate the eggs. Not completely, but it helps a little. So there are some obvious pros and cons here. First, lakeview property will always go at a premium. Second, land predators can't eat you in the middle of a lake. And third, it means you don't have to ever go on land, and so the grebe almost never does. But yes, there can be some moisture issues, and you do need to stay vigilant for leaks and sinkage. But if you're not afraid to get your tootsies wet, this could be the right choice for you. Rotting lake weeds aside, I give the floating grebe nest four stars. Bing, bing, bing. Now we come to another bird that has almost given up on land, the albatross. These giant winged beauties of the open ocean spend almost their entire life on the wing, circling the globe on their never-ending quest for squid. The story of how albatross do what they do is pretty fascinating, and if you want to know more, then check out episode 6 on the Tristane albatross. Today, though, we're more interested in their nests. Unlike the grebe, the albatross still suffers land to lay its eggs. For a bird that spends months, if not years, on the wing, this does result in some pretty awkward landings when they do finally make landfall. There are many videos online of albatross face planting as they come in on their massive wings. But once they have arrived, they set about making a nest, and the nest they make can be best described as a mound of dirt. And there is almost nothing special to be said about them. They are literally a mound of mud with an indent in the top that they lay the egg into. In one sense, they're not all that different from a cup nest, except they're on the ground and really big, almost like a plinth. The downside is that they are not predator resistant at all. For the most part, this isn't a matter as they tend to nest on predator-free islands, but as the Tristane albatross found out, if predators get on that island, their nests offer no protection whatsoever. As unimpressive as they are dirty, I give the albatross nest two stars. Bing, bing, bing. Another bird that makes a mound of a nest is the brush turkey. 
But these birds are serious about their mounds. These things can be about the size of a car and weigh up to four tons. They are built exclusively by the males who obsessively scratch up the leaf litter of the bush into one big pile. Now, the point of the pile is for it to rot, kind of like how the grebes pile works, except on a much grander scale. For the brush turkey, there is no need to sit on the nest. The rotting vegetation does all the incubation. On the surface, this sounds like a great tactic. There's no need to sit on the nest. Woohoo! But in reality, there is a delicate balancing act that goes on. The inside of the nest has to stay between 30 and 35 degrees Celsius for the eggs to incubate properly. To test the temperature, the turkey sticks its beak into the nest and has a feel. If it's too cold, more leaves get piled on. If it's too hot, he'll scratch some off the top. It's a case of constant adjustment that ends up taking more time to perfect than if they just sat on the eggs like a normal bird. Now, the male uses their piles of rotting trash to lure in the ladies. The nicer his trash pile, the more likely he is to mate. If he has a really nice heap of rotting garbage, many females may choose to lay their eggs in the pile, which he will tend to solo. But now, before you go thinking the brush turkey is a devoted father, you should know that he is far more interested in his pile of leaf litter than he is in his babies. He is territorial and will chase off anything that gets too close to his nest, and this includes his own newly hatched children. Once hatched, the chicks are left to feed and fend for themselves, and as a result, they do have a high death rate. So, as fancy and as clever as this nest is, so obsessed do the fathers become with maintaining the perfect pile that they end up blind to everything else around them, almost to the detriment of their own children. It could be that the brush turkey has pushed things too far. They thought they were freeing themselves from hard work, but they've become chained to a different type of labour that is arguably worse. I give the brush turkey nest two stars. Bing dong dong. Now, we are nearly at the end of our avian nesting exploration, but there is one more nest that needs to be reviewed, and that is the purple martin. The purple martin is another bird that has the same basic appearance as a swallow and a swift. They are fast, agile flyers with swept-back delta-shaped wings that spend their life in the air hunting flying insects. But is it a swallow? Is it a swift? Or is it something else entirely? Turns out they're a swallow. But we have already covered the swallow, I hear you say. How does the purple martin do things different? Well, once upon a time, the purple martin nested in cavities and crevices. But the purple martin population that breeds on the eastern seaboard of the United States has almost totally given up its natural nesting habits. Instead, they nest almost exclusively in artificial nesting boxes that people have made for them. For hundreds of years, people have put up houses to encourage the birds to nest, and the martins have obliged. Through years of imprinting and nesting, the eastern species has made a complete transition from nesting in the wild to relying on human-provided sites. It can be tricky to get the purple martins to form a colony, but once established, it will persist as long as nests are available. Martins have a strong sight tenacity, and if they successfully raise a brood, they will come back year after year to nest in the same place. 
Through this gradual process, the wild population has shifted to be almost totally artificial in their preferences for nests. And these nests can be fancy. They come in a wide range of designs and styles, from hegging white igloo shapes to traditional multi-room houses with windows and chimneys. All ornamental, of course. Now, it is true, the birds have put their fate in the hands of we people, and that is maybe a risky proposition. But I've got to have some faith in us people every now and again. For the last couple of hundred years, we have tended to and maintained the martins' nesting colonies all up and down the United States. People love these birds and work hard to make a nice place for them to raise their family. So it seems like a great deal to me. Purple martin nest, I give it five stars. Bing, bing, bing. And with that, we conclude this week's review of bird nests. It was a little bit of silliness, but in the process, we did more or less cover all of the different design choices birds have when it comes to making a place to keep their eggs. We didn't do platform nests, but I feel like they're basically like a cup nest anyway. Ah, don't worry about it. Now, next time I'm going to bring you something different, as I always do every time we have a next time. And in the spirit of Halloween, it's going to be a collection of spooky birds. Will the episode come out in time for Halloween? Almost certainly not. But hey, either way, it'll be a good time. I hope you'll join me then. Now, if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about our friend, the Eastern Rosella. These are a cute parrot with a sweet disposition, and they like to nest in tree hollows. Where does their name come from, though? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash bird of the week, all one word, link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innes of Cine Illustration, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com. And I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. You know, I really think we need to get some extra staff on hand to, you know, write and edit this thing, because, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a lot, and I feel like you're not pulling your weight. What do you mean I'm still talking to myself?